Okay. But first, we're going to talk about a theft. To call it brazen probably isn't saying quite enough. A Vancouver business owner, a small business owner, reached out to us with a photo that shows, well, it shows what appears to be somebody stealing the couch with her bare hands. That's exactly what is seen in this video. So we wanted to talk to the owner of the store, City Lux Boutique on House Street in downtown Vancouver to find out exactly what happened and what she's been noticing in the neighborhood these past few months, particularly during the pandemic. And Sunan Springs is, Spriggs sorry, is with us now. Again, the owner of the City Lux Boutique. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, you sent us a, a picture and a video showing a very brazen robbery. Can you walk us through what happened? So yesterday about uh, 5 p.m. we had customers in the store and uh, a female um, drug user actually just opened our door, walked in, took a look at our couch, picked it up and just walked right out the door with it um, and just walked right down the street. And this actually happens to us, not the couch being stolen, but um, people coming in or, or drug users coming in and stealing items from our store actually happens to us on a regular basis. It's quite an issue. Uh, and it's one thing to walk in, I would imagine, and not that any of it's okay, but kind of to walk in and take something off a counter or something uh, that's uh, small and accessible. Uh, but it sounds pretty crazy that she took a couch. It, it's actually mind-blowing. If you watch the video, um, yeah, it's... it's I, I don't even know how to describe it. I've, I've never experienced anything like that, to pick up a couch and just walk away with it. Uh, different level with no fear of repercussion stopped at the stoplight put it over her shoulder uh, it just shows that they, they have no fear of the police or any repercussions for this and um, this is getting out of control and when you say the robberies happen at the store on a regular basis how often would you say you've had people walk in and steal things the theft maybe happens every couple of weeks but on a weekly basis we have people that come in um you know, are very, you can tell that they're high on, on drugs, um, that they're active users, and they'll come to the store and it's really uncomfortable to have to try to get them to leave. Um, we've had to call the police on a few different occasions. Uh, when I come to open the store in the morning, there's often um, somebody sleeping outside my door with needles everywhere. Um, and when we leave at night again, it's, we're always in fear because you just don't know if they're, how they're going to react. And you know, even the one yesterday, we were told by the police later that she's actually known to them and she's known for being quite violent. And when they were able to um, locate her and, and get the couch back, uh, she actually had scissors on her um, and that she's known to actually fight police. So um, it's a good thing that we didn't actually approach her in the store. I, I, and I was wondering that, too, when you saw this person walking away with the couch and, and there were others in the store, did anyone make any attempt or, or shout out at her or do anything in, in response? The staff that were there at the time didn't do anything because I've trained them not to. Um, I wasn't the first person that saw it. I probably would have reacted differently, but uh, I've trained my staff not to react because, again, you don't know what kind of individuals these are, and I don't want to put any of my staff at risk of you know, being attacked. And when you say, when you describe this, this person as a drug user, um, and you mentioned too that there have been needles outside the store, drug paraphernalia, I, I just do, how do you know the person is a drug user? Uh, I mean, it's their behavior. It's, you know, they even tell that they're living on the streets. Um, they've often got marks on their face, but you can look at their eyes and the way that they're behaving. And it's very clear. Uh, have things gotten worse as far as break-ins and, and this kind of the garbage and debris outside during this pandemic? It, 
I don't know if it's just since the pandemic, but definitely this year. I don't know if it's like the relocation of some low-income housing that's caused it. Um, but we have a low-income housing project just down the street from us. And every single day, there's maybe six different times when the paramedics or the police are called. So it's, it, it's, it's almost the norm. Uh, in this case, uh, I know you, you did call the police uh, when this person walked out with the couch. You mentioned that they were able to, to pick up the person. Uh, my guess is uh, being able to give a description. So I don't mean to laugh, but to giving the description of somebody walking down the street carrying a couch uh, would make that a bit easier. Uh, do you find that when you do call police, it's a speedy response and that police do take these thefts and these uh, robberies seriously? Um, it's not always a speedy response. They always take it seriously, but a lot of the time they're still backed up with other calls that they can't make it on time. Um, so, you know, this one was easy to apprehend them because it was a couch. It's hard to miss that. Um, but when our clothing and other items have been stolen, those ones are never recovered. And how how difficult is it for you? And again, going through the pandemic, I know so many small businesses have been negatively impacted because of that. How how difficult is it having theft and losing product to, to robberies on top of that? I mean, it's been really hard. We've been down, you know, 50% in revenue since this pandemic started. Um, as a small business owner, as a single mom, you know, it's it's really tough. And any every item counts. And having like some of our expensive items stolen, you know, it really impacts our bottom line. Um, yeah. What would you like to see done? The city of Vancouver on Thursday is having a special council meeting where they're looking at ways of trying to house people who are homeless, uh, trying to, to provide more services. What do you think could be done to help in the area? I'm very compassionate to work with these people. I've actually been volunteering at the Covenant House for four years now, so I really understand that this is a much greater problem, but it is still a problem for small business and it needs to be dealt with. And, you know, I know there's, you know, safe injection sites that are going to be put up around the block from here as well. And I really think there needs to be a different solution. And I think it it has to start at the core of this problem, like the root cause of why there's so many users in the city. But um, I think the city really needs to do something about not putting these users in areas, you know, where there's businesses that are trying to thrive. There's parks, you know, putting them around parks where children hang out. Um, I know not just myself, but a lot of other business owners and just residents here feel very, don't feel safe. Don't feel safe walking. Don't feel safe being in this neighborhood. Um, So it's not an easy solution, but something needs to be done about it. And I think the city needs to rethink potentially putting these safe injection sites in so close to um, these areas. Will you do anything different or do you have to do anything different as far as security or as far as access to your store? We're looking at that. Um, We're looking at putting like a buzzer in. But again, this is a barrier to entry for our own customers. So that impacts our business and it's expensive to to, implement these systems because you have to switch out your whole door. Um, So again, as a small business with Going through the pandemic times are already really tough. We don't have the extra cash flow to be investing in all this additional security. I should ask you too, did you get the couch back? We, we got it back. Um, the police officers were wonderful. They were very helpful. Um, well, I just hope that, you know, sharing these stories um, helps bring awareness. And um, I know as a community, we're all in this together. And I have so much compassion for these individuals. So I hope we can find a solution that works for everybody. All right. Well, Sunan, thanks again so much for sharing this story and for contacting, uh, for reaching out. I appreciate it so much. Uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you.
That is Sunan Spriggs, the owner of Citylux Boutique, and she's going to be posting that video as well to their Instagram account. And she wanted to talk about this because it is one thing. I mean, as a reporter, I've covered a lot of bro- of robberies, of break-ins. Usually the brazen ones are when the business owner has security camera footage that it's happened overnight. It's happened at three in the morning. Thieves have come in and taken uh, taken whatever they can get their hands on. It's not often that it happens uh, in five o'clock at five o'clock in the afternoon in broad daylight when there are customers in the store and somebody just comes in and takes a large piece of furniture. I'm going to open up the phone lines. Would love to get your take on this. How do you respond to Sunan's story? What do you think needs to be done? Uh, I get what she's saying about safe consumption sites and and putting them in places next to businesses and parks. But when we're talking about an urban centre, how can you not put them next to places where people live? Uh, It seems difficult. What do you think the solution might be? What would you like to see done to these uh, chronic thieves? Like she said, uh, she was told this person was very well known for this type of behaviour. Today's platform includes 154 commitments, 60 which are brand new, the rest building on the work that we've already started. We have three basic priorities. Better health care for you and your family, affordability and security in your home and in your community, and good jobs and livelihoods in in a clean energy future. That uh, was John Horgan earlier today releasing the NDP platform. Richard Zussman joins us now, Global News online journalist in Victoria. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, very well. It's been a very busy day so far. <laughs> I think that this is the most important day on the campaign trail, other than when the BC Liberals will announce uh, their platforms, because this is the framework for why you are voting for a party. And yes, I know a lot of people want to vote for the leader and, and like either Andrew Wilkinson or John Horgan, but ultimately it's up to the ideas that they will implement. And I think it's so crucial to talk about the promises and, and look at them and let voters know what they are getting if they decide to vote for the NDP or the Liberals. So today we got the big package from John Horgan and the NDP, and there are a lot of things in there. <laughs> And as he said in that clip as well, so 154 promises, uh, 60 said to be new. What are some of the big ones as far as new promises? Yeah, so obviously the big one is this $1,000 check that every British, or not every British Columbian, is a mean-tested financial support that will be directly deposited into a bank account that British Columbians, based on what they make, will be eligible for. And so this is the big piece of pandemic relief. Horgan mentioned this will cost about $1.4 billion tacked on to the ever-growing deficit. And so the $1,000 benefit will be available for households with an income under $125,000 a year. It will be on a sliding scale going up to $175,000 a year for a household. Uh, and then, you know, the more you make, the less you make of the 1000 I don't think the breakdown is available just quite yet. For a single parent, they will also be eligible up to $1,000. If you are single with no kids, you will be eligible for a one-time $500 direct deposit. Again, that's if you're making less than $62,000 a year, sliding all the way up to $87,000 a year. So that's the big one. That is the big you know, cash-in-hand promise from the NDP to deal with COVID. 
And then there are a whole other slate of other promises, freezing rent increases to the end of 2021 and capping rent increases after 2021. The $400 renter's rebate is back. (laughs) You'll remember that from 2017, promised with much fanfare by the NDP and then never delivered upon. Now they're doing what they should have done in 2017, which is means testing it. So it's a $400 a year rebate for households earning up to $80,000 a year. um, And you only get it if you are not on on government supports already. Uh, To address the rapid increase of strata insurance costs, the NDP will put in place a public strata insurance option. This is really interesting. If the cost of strata insurance does not go down by the end of 2021, that's going to be a really interesting piece. A silver alert system, similar to the amber alert system for kids. This one is for seniors to help locate missing seniors, especially those with Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, you know, healthcare, a part of this, uh, a 10-year uh, cancer center action plan, uh, the commitment to making COVID-19 vaccines free. We heard about that yesterday for the first time. Scaling up the response of the opioid crisis. Working to fast track decriminalization of simple possession of small, uh, small uh, uh, amounts of illicit drugs. Uh, Child care, another part of this, you know, more $10 a day spots, but also a bigger plan, Jill, about rolling in child care into the education system and working with First Nations, universities, local governments, crown corporations to fund and support more child care spaces. So I think they're thinking about sort of an, an overhaul of how we look at child care and making it part of the entire education continuum. And so, so when looking at these, uh, you mentioned uh, the first one, the big one as well, that's the, the direct or the one-time deposit, uh, and again on that sliding scale. So has this platform been costed? It has been costed, uh, but I don't think there are any specifics on it. I'm just looking at the platform now, and again, it's been sort of all steam ahead to try to get this done. So I'm just skipping to the back here. Yeah, so there is some costing uh, in terms of priorities, and breaking down based on sections of the platform, how much is that's going to cost? And so there, there is costing here, and the revised deficit is now uh, $15 billion. Uh, so that's an increase from what was originally projected. But that factors in the recovery benefit, which is listed here for 2020-21 at $1.45 billion. Uh, and clearly that's a one time deposit into people's accounts and so that will disappear in the next fiscal year but yes not every single promise very specifically but uh you know the big items there access to affordable child care 250 million dollars yes there is costing at the back of the platform do you think this will resonate with voters? Because on the one hand, I mean, all of these things sound wonderful, but like you pointed out, we'd heard that promise of the renter's rebate before. Uh, there's been talk of some of these things before. We're still in a pandemic, and there, there, there has to be the question that the money at some point has to come from somewhere. Yeah, and I think this will resonate, and we expect that we'll continue to see deficits. You know, at this point, we're looking at the polls and people trust that John Horgan has done a good job managing uh, the pandemic. And I think there are promises in here. This is a pretty good substantive platform around commitments ranging around COVID, but also other issues as well. I think one of the concerns, though, is that I asked this question uh, to Horgan twice in the press conference is why did you not unveil this benefit? for British Columbians when you were governing. Like, Mm -hmm. British Columbians need this money. 
people are struggling to pay the bills, to get food on the table, especially those that are out of work. And they're worried about federal programs running out. And we know that the government wanted to make a commitment. And I just struggle to understand at what point did he have the decision in his head that he wanted an election? And at that point, did he say, well, I'm going to delay giving people the money they need in order to promise it during a campaign? And that, to me, just is a real big problem. And clearly, you know, people are looking beyond that and they can give them the benefit of a doubt. But I believe that this decision was made before the province announced its pandemic relief plan and held out the thousand dollar credit because it's a splashy election promise and one that they hope will help lead to their reelection. And I think that's that's an issue. I, I, I agree with you, and I think people are going to take issue with that. So we, I wanted to ask you as well, though, uh, the other uh, big announcement or big promise that we're hearing about today is from the Liberals saying if elected, yeah. they would open up insurance, auto insurance in this province. Yeah, and exactly how that looks is still going to be very unknown. Andrew Wilkinson will have his full platform. My guess is at some point later on this week. And what basically the Liberals are promising is to break up the ICBC monopoly and to make all insurance options available from both ICBC under a no-fault system as well as from private insurers under a non-no-fault system. And one of the issues here automatically, Jill, is one of the reasons why costs are so high for insurance here are the massive legal costs associated with it on both sides. What ICBC pays its lawyers, what people pay their lawyers to help defend them when they're looking for a settlement. We know those costs are going up and they are incredibly expensive. If we have a system that's broken up this way, then there still will be legal costs associated with a private insurer. And I am not sure how the Liberals will address that because those will drive up the costs And it doesn't necessarily mean competition will mean cheaper insurance. It could actually drive up the price because ICBC will be offering to less people. There's a lot to factor in there about exactly what choice does when it comes to cost. We know insurance is too expensive in the province. We know for younger drivers it's prohibitive and is leading in many cases to people just not driving or not driving with insurance. And but exactly how this pro- promise will address the costs, I, I am hoping to find out over the next few days because obviously this is a pretty major commitment from the Liberals. All right. So, well, let's leave it there for today. I, I know still lots to get to, to and lots to go through as far as uh, the promises just today. Uh, we'll chat with you tomorrow. Who knows what we'll be talking about tomorrow, but uh, <laughs> let's do it all again tomorrow. Can't wait. It is uh, time for us to take a look at what is happening south of the border. Donald Trump, as you know, back at the White House saying that he has no symptoms any longer of COVID-19. Also suggesting or announcing that he is calling off COVID-19 stimulus relief negotiations until after the election. Well, joining us with more on what's happening in the United States is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks for being with us again. Good afternoon. Uh, Where to start? Let's start uh, with Donald Trump being back at the White House, uh, saying he has no symptoms, but uh, seems to not be addressing the fact that he still has the virus. 
he does still have the virus. Uh, he is being fairly cavalier about it in his tweet that was released this morning, uh, trying to equate again uh, the virus to the flu, uh, saying that, you know, 100,000 people or more die from the flu every single year. That was flagged by both Twitter and Facebook as being uh, misinformation. But what he said in that tweet was, quote unquote, we've learned to live with it like the flu. Uh, now we are learning to live with COVID. But there are 210,000 Americans that did not learn to live with COVID because they died from COVID-19. And President Trump uh, had this virus to a point of where he needed to go and get the kind of care that no other American would be afforded an opportunity. Uh, so for the president to come out with that word, it is just safe, uh, uh, facing swift blowback uh, right across the country. And what about the the announcement then saying that uh, there's no need, he doesn't want any of the stimulus relief negotiations going ahead? I mean, look, this, this has been a back and forth battle between the White House, uh, the Senate and House Democrats now for months trying to get another stimulus package out to Americans uh, as businesses continue to hemorrhage money. Uh, corporate uh, uh, kind of ventures continue to, to hemorrhage money, including things like airlines, which just laid off an incredible amount of people uh, earlier this month and late last month. Uh, now that there is no money coming forward, uh, this is problematic for the president because he is now facing the fact uh, that heading into an election, there is not going to be stimulus aid heading across the country, uh, particularly to the people who need it most, who he may be relying on for a vote uh, either now through early po- voting or towards uh, Election Day. Uh, this was a, a, a dramatic move that sent a wild swing on the market, stop, dropping them 600 points uh, within just a matter of minutes of him sending that tweet. Uh, which he had to know or at least have some idea that, that by announcing that could have that uh, reaction. Well, look, this is a president who is trying to project a strongman uh, approach in a co- in a pandemic that he has been uh, accused of failing when it comes to leadership. The number of people that contract the virus is going up. The number of people that die is going up. Uh, the number of money that's coming out of Washington uh, is going down uh, and has remained essentially at zero. And while jobs numbers are going up in the U.S., it's going slowly uh, and it is not full recovery. So this this is just problematic for a president who has run on the economy and he's making a point now of saying when I am reelected, he's going to sign a new bill into place uh, in order to try and get money out there. But that's not a guarantee for President Trump. And it simply leaves a giant question mark over the livelihoods of hundreds of millions of Americans. And when we talk about uh, his recovery as well, just uh, circling back to that, because while well, he's putting out this image and uh, there was some video captured earlier that he appeared to be breathing, uh, his breathing was a bit labored, but he's putting out this image that he's he's come through this thing and and been triumphant and like we've been saying he's tweeting out that it's no big deal Uh, there are still doctors though saying that he could still experience more symptoms and even more more detrimental symptoms yeah, look, this is not uh, the president's doctors. Uh, today was the first time they never said that he is not out of the woods yet. That's what we've been hearing from them each and every day. They put a statement out. Uh, his physician put a statement out saying that the president uh, is doing well. It was worded very uh, uh, kind of uh, cleverly is saying that Donald Trump is not reporting any symptoms. Uh, and it also showed that his oxygen levels were still lower than what they were reported to be uh, over the weekend. Uh, yet the president is trying to say that he feels fine. Worth pointing out, he's on a very aggressive medica- uh, medicative treatment right now, including steroids, which could potentially be why President Trump feels good. We know that recovery can take uh, days, weeks, months, potentially even years because the data simply doesn't exist. And there have been people who a month after uh, 
being diagnosed and then feeling okay, like Herman Cain, a former presidential candidate who caught COVID at one of Trump's rallies, died more than a month later. And fair to say as well, Herman Cain also would have had access to great doctors and medical treatment and certainly would have would have had access to that. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, you can have all the money that you want in the world. It's a virus that doesn't choose between rich and poor. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it coincides with the symptoms that your body is dealing with. It coincides with pre-existing conditions. Uh, and everybody reacts to this virus differently. The majority recover. Uh, some people don't recover. And when they do recover, it, it may have a life-altering impact to them. So uh, when the doctors say that the president's not out of the woods, but he's saying that I'm fine, again, this is Donald Trump looking in the mirror and projecting everything outwards what he sees. What happens next then as far as the vice presidential debates, any other presidential debates and the campaign going forward? So Donald Trump uh, tweeted earlier today that he fully intends to take part in the October 15th debate. Uh, This is problematic because the White House will not say when the president's last negative test was. We just know when his positive test was, which was on Friday. If he had just come into contact and just contracted COVID-19, this would put him within the still CDC quarantine time when the debate takes place. Uh, Realistically, medical experts say you could be contagious 10 to 20 days afterwards. So he says he's going to go. There's obviously going to be precautions needing to be put in place if it does go forward. Uh, The vice presidential debate, that is still set to take place tomorrow. The vice president has tested negative. The White House says that he doesn't need to be in quarantine. What we're hearing now, though, is that Pence is pushing back on COVID precautions on stage. They had uh, reportedly agreed to having plexiglass separators between the two. He's now pushing back on that. Well, Kamala Harris says that they want it. This is still a very politicized pandemic. All right, Uh, Reggie, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you. What issues are top of mind are the most important to British Columbian voters as we are now in, what, the third week of the election campaign in this province? Uh, It also looks at what parties have done so far, the best, the worst, and where people stand on who would be the best leader. And joining me to talk more about the results is Dave Korzynski, Angus Reid Institute Research Director. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Happy to join. Uh, So let's look at at some of the numbers. So you asked people what issues are of most importance to them right now. What did you find out? Yeah, as you mentioned, we're three weeks into this, but we find, you know, for a lot of people, the the campaign hasn't really started yet. (laughs) Um, So we wanted to check in and see, you know, what is it that, that people are concerned about heading into the leaders' debates next week? What are the things that they're going to be following and, and what's important to them? And really, the, the reason that the NDP, I think, is performing so well right now in terms of our vote intention is because the number one issue is, as many people may expect, COVID-19 response. Um, healthcare is, is next in line. Uh, basically, those are the top two. And when you ask people who's best on those, um, those are both NDP issues. Um, rounding out the top five, just so listeners have a, an idea of what everybody is, is kind of concerned about, heading into the last couple of weeks here, um, is housing affordability, climate change and the environment, which has really kind of been put on the back burner over the last few months, uh, and economic growth. So those are the five issues that I think the the campaigns are going to be trying to make some headway on, uh, particularly next Tuesday when they face off of uh, whoever wants to tune in. 
And interesting, so this was done obviously before the platform release because the release was just earlier today. Um, And no surprise, as you mentioned, COVID-19 response and healthcare came back as uh, the New Democrats doing a better job, climate change, the Green Party. Uh, Economic growth, though, came back in that rounding out that top five for uh, issues of concern. What did people say about that, though, as far as who would be best, uh, who they trust, I suppose, best to, to, yeah. to, to do that? Yeah, and that's really, this, this is going to be kind of the key for the BC Liberals, you know, as, as the opposition have been put in a, a tough spot. And I think that's kind of what the NDP was, was hoping to do by calling this election early, is people are so concerned about those core issues that, when you get down to an issue where the Liberals have an advantage, which is that economic growth, that's the first one of the five where the Liberals are chosen as the best party on it. For COVID response, it's it's the NDP, 67%. For healthcare, they get 57%. And for housing affordability, they lead as well. The Greens obviously perform very well on climate change. But then when you get to economic growth, uh, 64% say the Liberals would be best on that issue. So I think for Andrew Wilkinson, it is the really considerable challenge of trying to get people's attention on that issue um, and how his party can get the, the province kind of booming again. Um, but it's very hard to disassociate that with COVID-19 and with the kind of uh, the shutdowns that people have been, in most cases, supportive of in terms of restrictions and, and curbing economic activity. So it really is. It's such a, a difficult election, I think, for the BC Liberals to kind of find where their niche is right now, um, because COVID is dominating, and the NDP is, as the incumbent government and as performing well so far, has such an advantage on that. So, um, yeah, if the Liberals can kind of change the channel a little bit to discuss the economy and what they need to do building out of this uh, recession then I think they, they have a, a little bit more of a chance to kind of uh, generate some momentum. I also found it interesting, a bit of a, the disconnect in people saying that while they find the election is unnecessary and should have gone ahead at the fixed date next year, uh, for a lot of people, that's still not going to change how they vote. Yeah, that, uh, in that I think really speaks to the calculation that, that Horgan and the New Democrats um, kind of made when they decided that they were going to call this early is that you know, people probably don't want to head to the polls. It's, we find 58% of people say that this is an unnecessary election and, and could have just waited until next year. And even 28% of people who say that they're planning on voting for the NDP say that. Um, so they, they took the gamble that um, while it may uh, ruffle some feathers, that it's not going to be enough to, to push people away from the government that they had been showing quite a bit of support for. Um, it's probably no surprise that the BC Liberal supporters, 93% of them say that this the election is unnecessary. 60% of Green supporters, they're at about 14% um, in vote intention. 60% of that group say that they think the, the election was unnecessary. So there is certainly a bit of resentment. Um, but when you see the NDP at 49% compared to the Liberals 31 you could kind of make that, that claim that it, it's, it hasn't been enough to, uh, to push voters away. They're still, still planning on supporting the party at basically the same level they were 
six weeks ago before there was an election call. And I, I think you're absolutely right that that was likely what the internal numbers were saying leading up to the election call. Uh, that said, you've also polled people and, and tried to gauge as far as engagement in the campaign. And uh, not that there's ever 100% engagement, but certainly people are busy right now. We're doing other things. Uh, what did you find there? Yeah, there's really there's not a ton of people who are paying a lot of attention. Um, so, as you mentioned, we're at about the halfway mark. Um, I think this will kick up a little bit when we get the leaders head to head. People tend to tune into debates, and that's uh, I mean, especially with what's going on south of the border, the, the debate has kind of a uh, is drawing interest. I think, and I think BC residents will be pretty interested to to check in on that, even if they don't watch all of it. I think it'll be the first exposure for a lot of people to Andrew Wilkinson and Sonia Furstenau. Um, And and that'll start to kind of uh, draw the numbers into where where we're going to see them on election day. So I think we're a little bit far out right now to say that that's where the election is going to end up. But when when you look at the attention people are paying, only about one in three say that they're paying a lot of attention to this and it's something that they've been talking to their friends and family about and trying to to kind of make their calculations so for most people they're either not paying attention at all or they're just kind of they're looking at the headlines and they probably see an announcement about ICDC and they might look into that later but for for right now I think everybody's kind of preoccupied back to school has taken up a lot of attention a lot of time and COVID is it's honestly, I think everybody is probably feeling the same way. It just feels like it's always enveloping you. So you you don't have a lot of time to think about politics these days, I think, for a lot of people. So they'll be tuning in the last couple of weeks in the debate a little bit more. But for now, um, people are a bit disconnected and not really following it too closely. All right. Interesting findings for sure. Dave, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much. No problem. Maybe we'll chat after the debate to see where everyone's at. <laughs> yes, let's do that for sure. All right, take care. You too. That is Dave Korzynski, Angus Reid Institute Research. Well, a lot of people calling in during that last segment about ICBC, about auto insurance, uh, many different opinions on what that should look like in this province. Uh, now we are joined by Jazz Johal, who is the BC Liberal candidate for Richmond, Queensboro. Jazz, thanks so much for being with us. My, my pleasure. Uh, I know you were asked about this uh, earlier today as well, but can you uh, walk us through when we hear from uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, Andrew Wilkinson, saying he will end the ICBC monopoly? What exactly does that look like? It's the ability to uh, allow uh, private insurers uh, greater access to customers uh, here in British Columbia. We would have two systems. If you prefer to, to do business with ICBC, you can. If you prefer to um, do business with private insurers, you can. It's about offering choice uh, to British Columbians. So there's some, um, uh, obviously, involvement with the private sector already. Private insurance uh, providers do provide uh, some um, uh, opportunities for British Columbians right now, but I think we do have uh, greater opportunities for private insurers uh, to offer their uh, services to British Columbians. You know, one thing, I was ICBC critic for about a year or so, and the calls and emails that I used to get on a regular basis in regards to um, frustrations that British Columbians have felt. Um, look, there's people who like this present system, like ICBC, and that's fine as well. But there's people who want choice, and that there's not enough choice. Um, they're not happy with the fact that we, in this day and age, 
cannot buy insurance via online. Uh, there are those who want better sort of opportunities in regards to um, uh, the, the products that are offered by the insurance companies. And so when we looked at ICBC, and it's a 46-year-old uh, monopoly, uh, that uh, there's time now to provide choice, and that's what British Columbians have said. So, you know, if you look around today, uh, you as a consumer can go uh, book your own flight or your own hotel. Why can't we have online insurance? Uh, why can't we have a greater private sector involvement to drive innovation within the insurance industry? And there are those who say, look, I like ICBC. I want to, I want to stay with them. And that's okay as well. So this is just to have maybe improve the system, I think is the best way to say it, because it drives ICBC to be better, much more customer focused, and it drives disruption in a good way in that uh, these uh, two entities can then compete for for consumers. So we hear that regularly anywhere you go in British Columbia. I just want choice. So we're trying to address that fundamental um, concern that British Columbians have articulated to us. What about concerns that by opening it up to a two-system type system that the private insurance companies will only take those drivers with impeccable driving records that are unlikely to get into a crash? ICBC is then stuck with the bad drivers and rates go up because of that. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think uh, the way you write that policy will address some of those issues. I, I hope, uh, you know, we do not want uh, ICBC, as you say, to just get the bad drivers. That's not the right thing to do. You want ICBC to be able to compete in the market as well and do well. And like I said, there are British Columbians uh, who like what ICBC has to offer. Uh, but in regards to choice, you can't just say, look, uh, you're not going to bring in um, – uh, choice for British Columbians because we're worried what might happen to ICBC. ICBC is going to be forced to com- to forced to uh, compete in, in that market, and there's nothing wrong with that. Generally, when you have competition, it drives innovation, it drives customer focus, um, and it drives uh, finding efficiencies as well. And so, I think that's important. So for us, um, when I've heard this day in and day out when I was ICBC critic, and from all parts of British Columbia, that they just want choice. And some people, when they ask for choice, may go with ICBC, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, I appreciate Mr. Eby saying that uh, that this will drive up costs. Uh, the, you know, this this uh, monopoly was set up uh, about 46 years ago, and there was reason to set it up in, in the early 1970s. Uh, farmers couldn't get insurance. It was a different time, different era. And now uh, British Columbia is saying, look, uh, we want that choice. So the public insurer will have to compete with a private insurer and vice versa. Uh, I wanted to ask you as well, and I know you were uh, questioned on this also, your response to uh, parts of the platform that were released from the NDP earlier today. And the one that seems to be getting the bulk of the attention is this one-time recovery benefit for families. Yeah. You know, so way back in March, uh, Mike DeYoung and I, along with 10 other MLAs from the other respective parties, uh, went to the legislature in the emergency session as COVID, uh, the full brunt of COVID was being felt um, at that time. And we approved the rest of the budget for the year, which is our regular budget, about $36 billion at that time. But with that came an emergency fund on top of that, which is an extra $5 billion to help British Columbians and businesses that are dealing with the challenges of COVID. The NDP government should have at that time prioritized what the needs were and had that money out the door as soon as possible to help British Columbians. That's what it was there for, and that's why I think we've received kudos as opposition, as government, as Greens, uh, working together. We took politics out of this. But for the government at that time to hold on to that money and then to announce what they've announced today in the middle of an election campaign 
is highly offensive. We agreed upon that emergency funding, and the reason we called it emergency funding is because it should have been out the door and prioritized in helping British Columbians immediately. The fact that Mr. Horgan held on to that money since March, and now all of a sudden today they're going to dole it out at $500 per person and $1,000 per household, is highly offensive. It doesn't pass the smell test. Uh, you know, you look at the tourism industry. They've been struggling for months now. So they've asked for $680 million. Some of that money could have helped them. It could have helped the their specific uh, um, employees, whether you're, you know, uh, running a bicycle rental company, uh, a whale watching company in Victoria, or a myriad of other small businesses that uh, uh, provide clean fun and generate billions of dollars for, for government in the tourism sector. We could have been helping those people right away. For Mr. Horgan to be holding on to that, you've got to wonder how long these guys have been plotting this election, this unnecessary pandemic election. And then now to use those dollars, taxpayer dollars, that should have been helping people, and to dole this out in the middle of an election campaign. I just think it's highly offensive, and it doesn't pass the smell test. And I think British Columbians uh, recognize it for what it is. Were the conversations, though, about an emergency benefit, were they specifically this, what we're talking about today? They were specific to what government felt the priorities were and what they were hearing from the people of British Columbia. We were not uh, in that emergency one-day session. One-day session, remember. We were not too concerned about this amount has to go to small business. This amount has to go to this industry. This amount has to go for a specific individual. We, in good faith in opposition, said, here's $5 billion that we've set aside, and the government should address the needs as they come up. Uh, during this COVID period. You've seen a significant amount of dollars from the federal government uh, who have aggressively uh, tackled uh, the challenges of COVID on the health side and on the economic side. And I'll leave it to the federal parties in opposition to, to quibble over what was right, what was too much, and all of that. But what we can say is government generally, federally, aggressively challenged uh, and moved forward on, on, on various policy issues. This NDP government has essentially sat on its hands. A few announcements here, a few announcements there. But that money should have been out way earlier, way earlier. And to hold it back now uh, is what really, um, and I'm sure you can hear through my voice, I find very offensive that, you know, when you know British Columbians need help, um, and knowing you're holding back that money, that you're not providing that service that should have been there immediately, to hold it back now, uh, I just don't think, like I said, if this passes a smell test for British Columbians. They should not have done such a thing. We, in good faith, said $5 billion, us and the Greens and, and the NDP. And on that very day, we talked cooperatively of working together. So you have to have a leap of faith as opposition to say, look, this money's going to go out. They're going to use it. But they've been holding on to it and holding on to it and holding on to it. And now, magically, during an election campaign, they're ready to dole out the money. When British Columbians could have used that money uh, four, four months ago and five months ago, and it's not just the thousand dollars here. The other day, you heard David EBC. Any uh, COVID uh, money that ICBC has saved, we will give it back to you. You know, private and public sector insurance companies were saying this back in May and June. In fact, they not only did that; they cut a check and mailed it back, either in savings or actually direct deposit into people's accounts. Manitoba's public system did that. Private insurers across the country have done that. From end of March to, to June, a seven-week period, there were 50,000 less accidents. So ICBC saved, just in that seven-week period, $158 million. I'm sure you see out on the road today, just as I see, there's still less cars on the road. ICBC has been saving money. And yet Mr. Eby and, uh, and the government have slow-walked this thing since day one and said, well, we're not sure. Some people have canceled insurance, so there might not be as great a saving as, there can, as we thought there would be. Public and private insurers have already paid out that money. 
And now during an election, they're saying, well, we're going to we're uh, we're considering uh, giving that some of that money. That money has been sitting there. It got to the point where this summer session, just in August, late July, August, early August, I introduced a private member's bill saying any savings from COVID has to be returned back to ICBC customers. And Mr. Eby did nothing about it. And now during an election, they're now saying we're going to return some of that money, even though they've never said how much money they've saved. But magically, they've still walked this thing. And now announcement just the other day that we're going to return the money. So it does make one very, very cynical, Jill. I'm looking at uh, the poll numbers, and I know poll numbers are just that. They can be wildly wrong. Things can change in a day, in a week. But they do show the New Democrats over and over being chosen as the best to deal with the pandemic and ahead in the polls. Did the PST announcement kind of fall flat or what do the B.C. Liberals need to do at this point? I think we're going to keep doing what we're doing. You saw a significant announcement in Surrey in regards to the police referendum. I think you saw a significant announcement in regards to um, uh, the Massey crossing. Um, And we're going to continue to to make those announcements and focus on uh, what the people of British Columbia want to hear. There's a significant amount of undecided voters out there. Uh, Polling sometimes also doesn't pick up the incredible diversity uh, of British Columbia, especially the lower mainland. Uh, My riding alone, 35% of my riding is uh, uh, Chinese, so it's a significant amount of folks who speak Cantonese, Mandarin, and Punjabi uh, that usually don't get picked up in these polls. They're mostly English-language polls. So in a riding like Richmond alone, which is 76% visible minority, uh, those kind of polls don't necessarily, um, uh, you know, they're not as accurate as I'd like to see. So, number one, that's an issue for me in, in writings like Richmond. But secondly, there's a huge swath of undecided voters. And so, number two, they're looking for a place where they will, where they, where they, what, what party they want to support. And thirdly, when you hear of cynical announcements like this today, $500 person rebate, $1,000 per household, money that could have gone out the door many, many months ago, the ICBC announcement the other day from the NDP government, I think that's also going to switch uh, votes for for us as well. So, you know, election campaigns, as you said, can change very quickly. Campaigns matter. And so this kind of election campaign is fought in 87 different ridings. It's not one election. It's actually 87 mini elections. And every one of these elections is fought street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood in regards to door knocking, listening to people. And when I you know, I was out the other day, it's six hours of door knocking. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks uh, I heard saw a lot of support. Um, they're asking a lot of questions on issues. There are some folks that are undecided, and, and to be blunt, some people actually already voted. So they got the mail-in vote, uh, and uh, there's half a million British Columbians, or close to half a million British Columbians, are going to vote by mail. Um, so this thing is not over, not even close. And the fact that uh, we are challenging and questioning this NDP platform today is further reminder that there's many, many days ahead in this election, and we're going to continue to push, push hard and challenge some of the, the, the statements and the policies that the NDP have put forward. All right, we're right out of time. Uh, Jazz Johal, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Well, yesterday during the live update from Dr. Bonnie Henry, we found out what the numbers looked like from the weekend. Mondays, I think there's always a fair amount of anticipation because it's a three-day reporting period of the new cases of COVID-19 in this province. Dr. Henry was also asked at length about school exposures and how things are going there and how we're doing in general with our exposures rate and with how many social interactions we're having as well. So joining me, 
to talk a bit more about these numbers and uh, the modeling that was released yesterday is Caroline Colleen, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at SFU. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Good afternoon. And what is your takeaway? First, I want to talk about the number, uh, the R number that often gets talked about. That's uh, how an infected person, how much they are then infecting others in the community. How important is that number? So it's an indicator of whether we're going up or going down. So when it's below one, we think that each case is going to infect on average fewer than one other. So that's great. Uh, if, if it's true, it's great. It's a bit um, it's a bit of an average over both space and time because people are not only infectious today. Of course, they're infectious over a whole period of time. So it's sort of a measure. It's really just a measure. If it's greater than one, people are causing on average more than one new infection per per case. And so it'll go up. And if it's less than one, it should be going down. So it's kind of a measure of just whether whether we're going up or down. And what about looking at the demographics and the different age groups of who exactly is getting infected? Yeah, so um, I think it's still the case that primarily we have, you know, younger adults and, uh, you know, medium adults who are getting infected. We don't have a ton of new infections in very young kids, which is great. And we don't have lots and lots and uh, the very at risk, uh, much elderly, you know, very elderly. So that's also great. And that has uh, an impact on hospitalizations, because of course, if we have people who aren't as at risk of serious uh, or severe COVID, then that's a less of a burden on our healthcare system for now. Um, I should say, age groups aren't islands. Uh, they're not completely disconnected. We all have some contacts with people who aren't exactly our age. And even places that are literally islands are still not completely isolated from the rest. So I think that's uh, that's a real question of how that's going to go. Uh, because we often get asked, or 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 that that number of hospitalizations will will get called out and saying, well, you can't just report on the numbers, the number of infections, because it needs to be based on population. And again, that important number of hospitalizations and people who are in the ICU. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing, you know, when people are in ICU, we know because we run the, you know, the province runs the ICUs. So in principle, you know, we, we don't miss people who need ICU care, whereas especially early on, we really weren't sure how many COVID infections we were actually testing. And we're still not completely sure. Uh, so that's another piece of information, just testing rates, uh, how many of the of the true infections out there we think we're, we're testing and how many we're finding. Um, and it kind of all plays together because, of course, hospitalizations also lag. It takes time for people to get ill enough to need hospital. And it takes time for the infection to move from age group to age group into groups that are more at risk of needing hospital. Uh, when, yesterday, when asked about exposures in schools, uh, Dr. Henry talked about the fact that children make up a very low percentage of cases. I think she said under 10% uh, of all the COVID-19 cases in the province are, are children in that age group. But there is a lot of concern because of what you just said, that people aren't islands and those children might have access uh, or exposures to grandparents and might be in the community and not know that they are, that they are potentially spreading the, the disease. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say a couple of things. Children are a smaller portion of infections. They're also a small portion of the population. So you have to compare that, you know, 10% of infections to maybe they're 15 or 20% of the population, but they're not at zero risk. Kids do get COVID. And I think there's an increasing body of data suggesting kids can transmit COVID. 
Um, and I think like with adults, it can be just really, really variable. So I don't know if you saw the um, the article in The Atlantic about this, but the, the kind of unlucky events or the high transmission cases uh, can happen in adults, too, where many adults may not infect that many others. And then sometimes just get unlucky and you get the karaoke bar moment where the infectious person is also doing a risky activity and you get a big outbreak. So I hope that we won't see that with kids. Uh, but I think data around the country and around the world suggests that maybe we can. Um, there can be outbreaks in schools and we do need these measures and, and really to be watching for them. Well, and that really opens up that whole other conversation, doesn't it, about viral load and that somebody, one person can test positive and have a much lower viral load than somebody else who then, like you say, in a, in a karaoke type moment, uh, would already be much more likely to pass on the virus. Right. And so we know something about what environments and activities are risks, and we know a bit less about what, you know, how we might predict whether person A or person B is going to have that high viral load at that moment when they're not sick and they don't know, that, you know, they're not sick to, to, to feel sick and they may not know that they're infecting others. Uh, we do know from some measurements that kids can have as high viral loads as adults and that teenagers can transmit. I don't think there's a magic that, that you get when you turn 18 that makes you a COVID transmitter. I don't think anyone really thinks that. So I think, um, you know, time will tell. I hope that we can keep the, you know, the risk of those unlucky events down by keeping community cases down because then we have fewer and fewer introductions into schools. And so the chance that one of those goes badly and is really unlucky is just less if we just have fewer of them. We'll just have to wait longer until we see one. And hopefully by then it'll be 2024 and we'll have a vaccine and we'll be done. Um, that's the hope. But I do think we, we have to monitor for it. And I think it's it's really early days still. We haven't had schools open for long. And so even if those unfortunate events are happening or do happen, we might not have seen them yet. Uh, you mentioned testing as well, and certainly with the exposures in schools, parents are getting tested more, kids are getting tested uh, using the saliva test, which I understand is a lot easier than the nasal swab. But how does that play into it, the fact that we are going to see this bump, particularly for, for school kids and their parents when it comes to testing? Yeah, so we may see a bump in cases because of increased testing. We haven't seen that yet, or maybe maybe we have, and real cases are declining hugely, but there's more testing, so it balances out. It's it's hard to tell. Um, I do think it's really promising. I think the saline gargle is fantastic because uh, it is easier for kids. It's comfortable. Um, the drive-through testing sites, I think, are handling these things really well in BC. We don't have huge delays. We're not, as far as I know, we're not waiting six hours in a, in a line outside with a a lot of other people at risk. So so I think that's great. And I hope that as we increase testing, you know, we find more cases. And when you find cases, as long as you're able to intervene and ensure that people are able to stay home and able to do distancing um, and notify their contacts, that's fantastic. Testing's not a cure, of course, uh, but if, if you can take action on those tests, then the more cases we find, the, the better we're going to be able to do. Because when we hear Dr. Henry as well say, as she did yesterday, she said uh, what we're not seeing is schools amplifying transmission in the community. And you mentioned contact tracing, because really the only way we could say that with absolute confidence would be if the contact tracing is working and we know for sure everybody, the children, the people in the school system are having contact with. Right. I mean, I think that's great that we haven't seen that. I think we have seen it in other provinces. There was an outbreak in an elementary school in uh, the prairies, I think in Manitoba. There was obviously the one in Quebec in the summer. 
the Boucherville Day Camp, where kids did get infected and did bring it home and, and transmit onwards to friends and family. And that does happen, does exist. It's happened in other countries and in other provinces, and it may happen here. Uh, it's early days for that. So schools opened fully on the 14th, even if in the first week an outbreak had started um, and maybe it's, it was in the second week or the third week or fourth or fifth. We haven't been into those weeks yet where a larger, less lucky outbreak happened. And then it was brought home and amplified into the community. It could be a couple of months before we even see that. So I think it's great we haven't seen it yet. What that means is that, you know, high level, high risk transmission in schools is definitely not the norm. It's not guaranteed. Um, and otherwise, we'd have seen tons of cases by now if it was guaranteed. But I don't think we ever thought it was guaranteed. I think the risk is really that the virus has this opportunity to now move through a whole population of close contact, you know, people having close contact that it didn't have access to before. So I think even though it hasn't happened, that doesn't mean, you know, we're done and we can stop looking for it. And when your kid gets a fever, send them to school. Don't do that. Um, we need, we really do need to still be on the lookout for this and aware that there's a lot of variability and in infectiousness among adults, probably also among kids. And so those unfortunate events could happen and they could happen any time and it's, it's really hard to prevent them. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again.